everyone. Welcome to episode number 24 of the Lift Me and Diet Hard podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates. And um, it's been long overdue that I actually get to talk to and connect directly with uh, Dr. Pat Davidson and bring him on here. I've actually been exposed to a reasonable amount of uh, Pat's work and hear endlessly about him, largely due to my uh, good friend and former co-host, Dean Guido, who is a, 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 a devotee of your training philosophies and principles. So he, he loves your work. So it's about time. And uh, it's great to have you on here. You're a doctor. You have your doctorate in exercise physiology, and you're based out of New York, and you just uh, had a book published. Uh, that's the Coach's Guide to Optimizing Movement. Uh, I think more um, better known as Rethinking the Big Patterns. So we'll talk a little bit about that. So the thing that I think, I don't know, maybe it's a misconception or maybe it's very accurate, but uh, you have a reputation as uh, being an outside-the-box thinker and someone who kind of challenges some of the conventional ideas within our industry. And I think the book sort of goes into that a bit. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's on my list for this year. So where does this approach come? Where does this philosophy in your, you know, challenging this stuff originate from? Yeah, I, I guess I am an outside the box thinker, but I've only earned that ability because I've learned everything about the box or at least enough about the box to be competent in that regard. You know, whereas I think a lot of people that claim to be outside the box thinkers are just incompetent fools that don't actually know anything. And they just want to like have, you know, something that, that jumps out there as a opinion that that is, you know, some somehow different or whatever they or to just think something should be done a certain way. But look, I think that at a certain point, you know, you learn basic information. You do your undergraduate information, and they present you a basic model of how things work from an anatomy and physiology standpoint. You do a master's degree, and you find out, oh, the stuff from the original basic textbooks is kind of wrong. You know, it actually works this way. Then you go on, you get a PhD and you're like, well, we actually, nobody has any idea how anything actually works. Here's the model that we think sort of represents it. Good luck. Maybe we can measure this stuff more acutely and, and more effectively with newer tools that come out in the future. But here's what we think is actually happening, but we don't really know, but this is where the evidence is kind of directing us. Then you work as a, a professional in the field and you realize like you meet the people that are doing the research in the area and they're like, yeah, we really don't know what's going on but here's what we think is happening and we measure it this way and we see the imperfections in them, blah, blah, blah. But eventually you get to the point where you realize like, you know, most of the recommendations that people get at a very basic level are, are just kind of like uh, these very sort of watered down things. And, and oftentimes you're like, well, it's, it's useful from a model perspective for very simple people that have a very simple level of understanding of a thing. But it's like very, you know, is it the end all be all by no means, you know, but if you understand the, the essence of something, then, then, then it help, it's helpful. It's a useful model from the standpoint of, of just simply giving someone some guidelines, but it's, it's not the end of the discussion, but if you don't understand where it comes from and you're trying to change it, well, then you're not useful either. So I think that that where this book comes into play is I've you know I've kind of learned a lot of the basics a long time ago. I've spent a lot of time in the basics. I've learned more advanced things, and I've spent a lot of time playing with advanced things. And I've been able to try to put it together in a way that is useful from the standpoint of actual coaches that that have to look like if you're a coach and you work 
either with athletes or with general population clients, and you're trying to develop well-rounded fitness development profiles for these individuals, and you want to have a better understanding of like what I think are the mechanisms of how movement actually works and how to coach these things, that's where this stuff becomes very, very useful. Uh, because at a certain point, you're like, hey, I, I, I'm aware that there's, you know, sort of squatting patterns and hinging patterns. And I'm also aware that the basics that I think I learned about these things aren't solving the problems that I consistently see because I still have Jimmy who tries to, you know, ankle squat his trap bar deadlift every repetition. And I got Gertrude who, uh, you know, she can't begin, you know, every time she tries to squat, she basically just folds at the hips like a taco and like touches her collarbones to her knees and it ain't a squat and Jimmy's deadlift ain't a deadlift. So what do I do about these situations? Because I see these same sort of archetypes over and over again. And no matter what I say to, you know, Jimmy about sitting his hips back, I've been telling him that I'm going to put a rope around his hips and pull it backwards for 10 years. It ain't working. How come it's not working? You know, you got to have some kind of a better working model to begin to help people like this. And, and that's kind of what I was trying to get at for, for every trainable pattern that I've got to put some principles together that are universal so that people can actually begin to see how this stuff works. And if you understand how it works, now you can have better strategies on actually being able to get people to do things right across the board. Uh, you know, I, I feel like you get, you can get into arguments with people all the time. And, and I, I just love to argue quite honestly, I really do. Um, but you know, it, it, and, and to me, arguments are like chess games where I just, you know, I think it's like you set people up with, with pawns and then you kill them with a rook or a queen. Um, and, you know, it's like there's there, I, I think that there's people that are like, well, you don't have to be overly focused on the minutia of movement to have a quality training session. I'm like, totally agree. Okay. But wouldn't it be nice if you just did the basics right? Don't you think that would be nice? Like, haven't you ever seen this kind of a thing? And also, like, if all you, you know, if, uh, if you look at some of the research and squatting versus deadlifting, it's like, Hey, we're, it's like the same muscles are being used in some ways, you know, they can't distinguish between these movements. And it's like, maybe we can't distinguish between the muscles being used because we're just deadlifting twice. You know, uh, every time I see the execution of these things, it's just a redundant movement. Like if I wanted to train biceps and triceps, I trained biceps twice. No, I'm just being being redundant and I wouldn't expect to see the triceps be developed if all I did was curls. So if your squat looks like a deadlift and you expect to train squat muscles and all you're doing is deadlifting with a bar in your hands by your side in one example and a bar on your back with, you know, in the other example, why would you expect different muscles? You know, pull it apart, figure out what's different and be able to train the different things the right way. And that's all I'm saying. Just, just figure out what you're trying to do and then do that thing right. And I think that the information I'm providing is in, is a guideline to be able to actually do that. that uh, that's an interesting, and actually it all makes a ton of sense. It's when you put it that way, none of this stuff sounds rebellious or revolutionary compared to what has been taught, you know, thoughts in there. I'll jump onto, I'll start with the sort of the point about arguing. And I'm a big proponent because often I was speaking to coaches who are much, much newer to the industry. And it's like, I tend to encourage those coaches to quote, stay out of arguing on Facebook. But here's the difference. You know, Mike Isertel admittedly will get into a lot of discussions on social media. You and Mike Isertel 
have doctorates in exercise physiology and have been around a long time. I know that Mike will say that it helps sharpen his, you know, interactive skills, his debate skills, which is very useful. I think for newer coaches, you're better off learning as much as you can, coaching as much as you can, working on building what I like to call career capital, not just social media, but long form content. And along the way, learn the nuance and the skill of, you know, having those conversations. And I think after a certain point, you, you develop enough of a place in the industry, enough confidence in what you're doing, and you can participate in constructive conversations. Just don't let them descend into shitstorms of, of ad hominem attacks and, and, and other sort of garbage. And then um, going back to kind of one of the first things you said, you know, in terms of like, there, there aren't really a lot of absolutes in terms of how we understand this in industry. Okay, like even the pathways to building muscle, we are not 100% conclusively sure about exactly what causes muscle building in what order of, you know, what ratios. I mean, we generally accept that mechanical tension on muscle tissue is a major pathway to growth. I mean, I think we can safely say that. We know that volume of tough sets is probably one of the best ways to put it into context in a usable fashion. Uh, metabolic stress. There are some people that think it is a major driver of muscle growth. And there's some evidence to that when it comes to things like high repetition, blood flow restriction, metabolite training. But you know, metabolic stress probably isn't a major factor in it. And my thoughts are that it's more of a concurrent thing that happens, a result concurrently with the action of producing mechanical tension on muscle tissue. But bottom line is we don't have a singular, like break down the graph to say it is this ratio of this, this ratio of this, this ratio of this. We're still trying to learn. You can go read um, Brad Schoenfeld's Science and Development of uh, Muscle Hypertrophy, right? You know, that's a heavy book and there's a lot of cool science in there, but I don't know if a personal trainer in their first year of doing, doing this stuff, if that's going to help them at all, you know, later on, I think it's good. I think, like you said, get in there, you know, the basic stuff. And if you've got someone who wants to put on muscle mass, okay, cool. Get them in the gym, teach them how to move well, teach them how to, to do it safely pain-free so they could accumulate more workload, more experience, more tension on muscle over time. Feed them protein. Guess what tends to happen? They grow. Does it really matter what ratio and proportion these different factors uh, come in there? And over time, in the long run, you can definitely try to understand this stuff more to help you along your quest. So you're nodding your head, yeah, with everything. So that's good. Um, mm -hmm. I'll go back to you, and then I was gonna, you know, go back to the book a bit. Yeah. Look, I think um, you know I, I've learned a ton from Mike Boyle, and. You know, I, I, I remember him talking about like, hey, what's the best ACL program? And it was like, uh, how about a well-rounded training program? Mm -hmm. You know, the same thing that works for pretty much, you know, what's the best shoulder prevention uh, program? What's the best, you know, uh, you know, fill in the blank. Like if you're trying to prevent ankle instability or, you know, like, you know, for the most part, if you are, hitting these big basic things you know like you're sleeping the right amount of hours you're eating the right number of calories you're hydrating properly your aerobic fitness is in the right level of development your overall systemic strength is in the right place you're including all of the major training patterns that need to be involved you're doing them with proficiency 
guess what? You're probably going to have a pretty healthy athlete and an athlete that's more resistant to injury and all of that kind of stuff. And, and look, it like corresponds with work coming from Tim Gabbett from a mathematical breakdown. Like, you know, what are going to be drivers of or predictors of, of injury, like age of the athlete, uh, you know, how strong the athlete is, how aerobically fit the athlete is. And then you start worrying about like training troughs or, or load troughs and load spikes and like load management based in, uh, factors. But it's, it's kind of like, you know, there's, there's certain things that like you have to, and I, I love like Mike Isretel talking about this training, uh, like fuckery to training spectrum and kind of like that, which would be associated with fuckery. And it's like, from the biggest of big picture standpoints, you're generally trying to move people from fuckery towards training. And there's just so many instances of examples of fuckery. And it's, it's like most of these things are, are self-evident, but you know, like I've, I've always tried to say like, look, I think, I think biomechanics is important and I love it. And I think that it's um, amazingly fascinating to be able to change the shape of a skeleton and to be able to give, joints access to positions and ranges that they didn't previously have. I just find it like a very cool puzzle to solve. But to me, it's just like a semi puzzle that's inside of a larger puzzle and that it's involved with, I, I, I really think that this as funny as it is, the fuckery to training spectrum is one of the most useful thought models I've ever had. And it's like, Hey, if like when people, an example of fuckery that would be associated with the way that, that, that biomechanics plays into it is if all of your training movements look like absolute hell, that's an example of fuckery. Like you didn't take the time and put the time into learning how to do things right. And if you do everything in a half-assed way, well, what do you expect to be the outcome from that? Is that the only factor that matters? Of course not but it has to matter to some degree. And maybe it's a tiny sliver of the pieces of the pie that, that matter, you know? Maybe it's like, like 1% as big as calories. And maybe it's as 1% as big as sleep. And maybe it's 1% as big as quantitative load management. I don't know, I don't think anybody knows, but it's almost resonates like that, that old statement of like the way you do anything is the way you do everything comes back to my mind. And it's like, Hey, it, it might be a keystone variable where if you pay attention and you nail your movements and you do them right, that might be something that plays into all these other variables. Like if, if it becomes when to me, I heard Bill Hartman talking about this concept and it's, it's something that I think is critically important that like, you know, people are always saying like, I want to follow my passion in life. You know, I just want to find something I'm passionate about and follow that. And it's like, that's not the arrow of causation. It goes the other way. When you put work into something and you develop something, you begin to care more and more about it. And at that point, now all of a sudden, as you've, as you've built something, you become passionate about it. And so I've always said to people like, you know, uh, I think we all kind of need our white whale to chase in life. And if you don't have this white whale to chase with some level of obsession and madness like Ahab had, then, then I don't know. I, I, I think that, that there was a big lesson in that concept and it might swallow you whole, you know, it might pull you down into its own vortex and, and, and strangle you to death. But, you know, I don't know if you're really pursuing a passion other, if, unless you, unless you have that to some degree, but it's uh 
I don't know where, where I'm going with this is that I think that if you care about something, you know, it's because you put time into it originally. Like, in, and in this particular case, we're talking about fitness and we're talking about, you know, driving adaptations to the body. And when you've put some time into that, you, you get exposed to all these different things like, oh, maybe my, you know, my squat isn't where I would hope it would be because well, I've been on a calorie deficient diet for the last three years because I'm terrified that I'll lose my abs. Oh, okay. You know, that's, that's not the best long-term developmental strategy. All right. Maybe we can focus on that variable for a little while and see if that drives change. Well, okay. Now my squad is stuck. I wonder why. Well, maybe it's because you're, you're getting red lights at every meet that you go to because you can't get to depth. Why is that? Well, now there might be some kind of a mechanical based phenomenon. And at that point, it's kind of like all of these areas, these silos have a level of depth to them. That's pretty remarkable. You know, when you get into the nutrition side of things, there's that silo is so fascinating and it goes in so many directions. You can go from into societal factors. You can go into the logistics of arranging, you know, nutrient timing. There's it's, it's limitless in that area. And the same thing is true of, of mechanics, you know, like we could explore it from the standpoint of dentistry. We could explore it from the standpoint of podiatry. We could explore it from the standpoint of auditory information coming in. We can explore it from the standpoint of like what's happening at peristalsis and the arrangement of your guts. We could explore it from any level in any direction and get sucked into a different rabbit hole. But I, I would hope that in any of these areas, we can begin to build out a hierarchy of importance. And when it comes to diet, that it's like, what is the single most important variable? Calories. Okay. Everything else is a subtopic based around that. And when it comes to movement, do we have the equivalent of what calories would be? And, and I think that it's a difficult question to come up with an answer to. And, and I don't necessarily have that answer, but what I tried to do with this book was to at least break it up into an organized fashion that presents all of the pertinent factors involved with the human expression of trainable movement and to try to give guidance in all of the major areas that actually exist. So I'll, I'll sort of make a statement here and that, you know, just the way you described that, you know, you really, I mean, it was in my plans for this year, but I'm going to make a priority of it. I tend to think that I'm on this kick now with our gyms being shut down and disruptions to business. I, I'm traditionally someone who you know, has done this for so long. My referral business just always takes care of it, right? But I've been really plugging into a lot of books like, um, well, Jonathan Goodman's uh, Getting Clients Referrals or Michael Port's uh, Book Yourself Solid, because I want that stuff top of my mind. And I often tend to encourage trainers where, you know, trainers will read that 15th article on how to do a fucking Romanian deadlift when they should actually be learning how to develop and grow their business. But based on what you said, I think it would be really good for trainers to put this book into your mind. It's like, um, something you were saying there, um, I was thinking about Nick Winkleman's book, The Language of Coaching. I'm not sure if you read it, but you know, one of those things, a lot of it has to do with external cueing versus internal cueing. And he gets into the science of you know attention, so the limitations of our attention when coaching. Should you be throwing eight or nine different random cues at someone as they're trying to do a hinge? Focus on the one thing, right? So that kind of goes into your, you know, your hierarchy. 
or, or, or the, the different factors that affect someone's quality of movement. You, you find the right cue and you can change the entire movement and all of a sudden they're moving right versus wrong. They're, oh, pain goes away, shit. Movement's good, pain is going away. You can load them more and now that's gonna drive performance right there. So that's maybe the one correct factor for that person to unlock it. Now, another thought too is your quote, uh, you, were, you made a sort of an unkind comparison to The Supple Leopard, which I have my concerns with that book as well. And you described your book as uh, being Megatron on trend. So I suppose talking about other books and while you were talking, you mentioned Michael Boyle, I pulled up and wrote on screen advances in functional training by Michael Boyle, which I think is wonderful. Another good read for trainers. You know, where do you think trainers are probably going wrong in terms of trying to read certain things or too much or, or what's wrong with some of the training books that are out there and maybe what should coaches be focused on and maybe that can extend from my thoughts on prioritizing their business skills over their, you know, going too far into depth with training skills. Yeah. Well, I try to make this specific to um, basically books on human movement. <laughs> and I think that they all are deficient at this point, you know, like I, I, you know, I look back to like supple leopard or something like that. It's kind of a joke, really. I mean, um, what we're just like putting bands on things and distracting joints and stuff like that. And it's like, that's about it. There's not, there's not like a holistic model to it or anything like that. It's, it's just kind of chaotic and random in some ways. Um, I think to a, a more robust book by Gray Cook's movement. And, um, you know, I think that was an important book for its time, but I don't know if you've read it. I mean, it's very redundant, you know, it's, it's, in, it's one of the most redundant books I've ever come across. And, you know, after reading it, it was kind of like, I didn't have that many takeaways after putting a tremendous amount of time into this book. Like my takeaways were things related to this, like the idea of, uh, okay, well, you have to measure things and figure out rate limiting factors from a movement standpoint, you know, like take a look at big movements. And if you see that the big movement isn't able to be done to a, a, an optimal degree, there's certain breakout tests that you would then go to, you know, if the person can't do a full body rotation, then take a look at the rotation of each individual joint. Uh, if they can't full body flex, take a look at the flexion of each individual joint uh, on and on and on from there. And then it was kind of like, you know, this sort of like ensure proximal stability before distal mobility concept uh, various other things that, that sort of have become part of like the, the pop movement lexicon, if you will. Um, and, you know, without fully, I, I got a lot out of that book. You know, I, I got this idea of like, look, like uh, if you need, like with certain trainable movements or sport movements, they, they need to have access to certain ranges of motion, motion of critical joints. And if you don't have that, you literally can't do the sport motion or the trainable motion properly. Like you could coach it till you're blue in the face, ain't going to happen. And essentially whatever would give you access to that joint motion is great. And as soon as you have access to that joint motion, now train the movements that are under the domain of being limited by that joint motion. And the more that you train them, the you know the probably the more you'll retain that motion capability and, and continue to own that joint motion and he makes this brilliant comparison of it being kind of like 
you know, a window that you're trying to go through to the other side of that window. And on the other side of that window are the movement expressions that you're looking to be able to do. But right now the window is closed. So the, the methods that you would use are the equivalent of opening the window and then getting across to the other side. And he basically was saying he didn't want to make his book about methods, you know, like at a certain point, like the methods are, you know, there's, there's probably a million different ways to be able to access that joint. And then once you've access, access the joint, you can get to the other side. And I agree with that from a principle based perspective, but I think at a certain point, give me some damn methods, man, you know, and what I wanted to provide here was that, well, you know what, we kind of already have our methods in some way, shape or form, especially in a training based environment, you know, like I, I tried to pull it apart and identify every training based movement that there is. And, and I broke it down into there being 13 basic premises of motor patterns that are expressed in human motor in human training. And, and I still haven't had anybody give me a 14th uh, in terms of the, the only, the 14th one would be like single joint isolated movements that are associated with bodybuilding. Okay. But other than that, like no one's given me a 14th, what I would call big pattern. And, you know, I, I can, I can list them quickly to just go through them like that breathing, uh, core thorax, core pelvis, locomotion, change of direction, throwing, um, triple extension, hip dominant, knee dominant, horizontal push, horizontal pull, vertical push, vertical pull. Those are, those are the 13 and literally anything that you could think of that, that you've seen people doing from an exercise perspective in some way, shape or form could get thrown into one of those groups. I don't care if it's Zumba class or yoga, they're actually living inside of those 13 uh, motor patterns. And, you know, so how can I look at these motor patterns and identify the ways in which people are limited in the expression of these particular things and categorize it from the perspective of, there's usually stereotypical ways in which people are limited in their expression of these motor programs. And what is it that's actually limiting it? And how do I go about my methods of actually giving people access to optimal expression of these motor programs? You know, what are, and, and so that's what was tried to be provided in this particular book is, and that the methods are actually capable of being systematically implemented from a principle-based perspective, okay? Not just like, a, hey, this is number one, this is number two, this is number three, sort of a randomly put together slapdash sort of regression progression model, you know, that's based on like, oh, 80% of people that walk in can do it this way. Well, why? What's the principle behind why that's the case? Uh, so in this particular example, it's like in terms of where to start people from any of these patterns universally across the board, I tried to give 10 principles that would tell you where to start people and 10 principles of how to move people forward, you know, and those principles are to start bilateral, start static. I always forget at least one of these every single time. I always get nine and I'm like, oh no, I forgot whichever one. But, and I'll try to get it here. Start static, start sagittal, start bilateral, 
start with short levers, start with minimal range of motion that is competent. And I have a whole chapter on what actually defines competency. Uh, let's see, start with maximum reactive neuromuscular training, start with maximal references, start with maximal constraints, uh, start minimize training load and minimize the difficulty of managing gravity. Okay. And then inside of each of those, I try to operationally define what that means because some of these things are easy to understand sagittal plane. We kind of all know that bilateral stance. We sort of know that one foot next to the other, uh, you know, when it comes to like minimizing the effects of gravity, I, I just say, well, it's easier to walk than it is to run. And it's easier to stand still than it is to walk. And it's easier to sit than it is to stand. And it's easier to, you know, lay down than it is to sit. And, you know, you can kind of figure that stuff out. Like, you know, embedded within at least two of those principles is start with more stability versus less stability straight up. Right. I mean, like less than yeah. gravity. Well, interestingly enough, I'm glad you brought up that word because I feel like, you know, previous models have been built around whether it be the joint by joint approach or, or other things, these concepts of mobility and stability. And you hear these sorts of terms of like, you need proximal stability before you can gain distal mobility. And, and I make a point in this book that I disagree with the inclusion of using either of those terms that I actually find them to be useless words. And I found this to be good discussion overall. Uh, in these kinds of conversations with other movement practitioners. And, and I consistently ask people, what is your definition of stability? So I'm curious what yours is. In, in the terms of this, I would think about it is, well, you know, the, I guess the example would be, you know, you talk about doing a lunge as a knee dominant pattern versus a squat as a knee dominant pattern. And then you go into your leg press, which, you know, progressively has more stability in that direction. And it's often easier to learn those patterns. I wouldn't necessarily start someone out with a leg press to be a way to teach a squat. But if you hold on to both hands on a TRX, you create two more points of contact and you have greater stability. It's often an easy way to teach someone how to do a good squat pattern and let them hang on to a TRX setback. That added stability will help them when they have less stability. And again, I'm sure that you, I'm sure the principles underlying are probably the same, just using different language to describe them, but. Maybe, but I'm, I'm actually, you know, because I, I get in these conversations and oftentimes what happens is what you're doing where it's like you describe activities yeah. and your perception of like what the activity looks like and involves. And it's like, well, I'm just actually just curious what, what your definition of the word stability is. And it's funny, I don't, you know, being put on the spot, I probably can't come up with a good. Have you heard any other practitioners in fitness ever give a definition that you can remember? Nothing pops off the top of my head. And I think it's just the way that we understand language we take for granted. And then you're like, oh, what is the actual definition of that? Yeah. Like, well, being more stable. Oh, that's useless. That doesn't help. Right, us. right, right. So I, to me, the definition of stability is the likelihood that something's going to fall down. That's, that's it. That's all the definition of it is. How likely is something to fall down? How do you measure that? You know, so it's like, this is why I actually bring these things up because I still haven't had anybody answer me. I even asked Stu McGill this uh, <laughs> because I was, I was co-presenting with him at an event we had here in New York. And, and during my presentation, 
you know, I was saying, I don't, I don't think that the word stability is useful. I, I just don't like it. I throw it out. I think it's a, a meaningless term in our context because it refers to how likely something is to fall over. And I literally have no tool to measure it with. I think that it's a subjective opinion that I, I think from the standpoint of, of someone's subjective feedback that I'm working with, oftentimes I'll ask people, do you feel more stable? And people usually have a pretty quick yes or no uh, in response to that. And it's like, okay, I'll take that. I'll take that for what it's worth, but it's not worth that much. And, and I remember him saying like, well, you know, uh, I hear what you're saying. And in my presentation, you're going to leave it and you're going to know exactly what it means. And you're going to have, and, and it never happened. Like I was waiting the whole time and he never actually gave me a real good definition or any way to measure it. And I let it go, but you know, it's kind of like, cause I'm, I'm just one of those people. I'll, I'll, I'll chew on that dog bone until it's gone until it's down to a nub. And, uh, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll be relentless on someone, but at a certain point I've learned like, Hey, leave it alone. Like there's, you know, there's no uh, pro from continuing to harp, harp on this at a certain point, but it, you know, to me, it's um, you know, I use other words and maybe you could say it's a semantics thing, but I'm a big semantics person because I think words matter and I think definitions matter. And, and I use the term of called ground Okay, and I divide it into external ground and internal ground. And I would say that the definition of ground is an immovable force that you can push against. Okay, and external ground is most commonly the earth. All right, and the earth as an external ground provides a limitless, immovable force that you could potentially create a limitless immovable counterforce against and that ground has is on a scale like how how much ground is something and i can't measure it okay but when it comes to a leg press versus a trx squat a leg press offers tremendously more external ground compared to a trx and the more external ground you have to be able to work against, the more you're going to be able to get your prime movers to act as the thing that's going to move an external load. So it's like, you know, the, you have to determine or at least come up with some representation in your head of the person that you're working with are they a tennis player that operates with very little external ground in their chosen sport activities? And in that particular case, you probably have to build their force output with very low external ground to a higher place, you know? And the less external ground you have available to you to support during the exercise, the more you have to rely on internal ground as your operating agent. Something, and this is where it's like, this is the, I just feel like the idea of proximal stability and distal mobility as a concept, someone saw something, but they used words that are useless. And I think that when I ask people, what's the definition of mobility, I get these definitions that make no sense. And people usually just provide the definition of active range of motion over and over again. The definition of mobility is that something has the ability to move, 
it's the dumbest word that you could possibly use. It's something either can continue to move further or it can't. If it can continue to move further, it's demonstrating mobility. If it can't, it is no longer mobile. And so to me, I'm like, that's the useless thing. Like I, I do have range of motion as, as, a, as a measurable thing. And that's the only thing I'm willing to work with. I can table test you and I can measure the degree to which your joints can move through space. And that's very useful to me because now I know your potential in terms of your ability to express motor tasks with certain joints. Like if I see that you have negative 25 degrees of hip extension, I know that that's as far as your femur can go, okay? And if I'm seeing you express what looks like full range of hip extension during active tasks, it ain't hip extension. You're getting it from somewhere else, okay? And that's useful for me because it tells me that there's compensatory strategies happening and it tells me that, you know, that's just something to monitor and red flag and, and that kind of a deal. But uh, in terms of, of like when I watch someone move through space and they have to do it with high levels of velocity or high levels of force and there's very little in the way of external ground available to them in the chosen sporting activities, I realize that at some point in the training environment, I probably have to direct that person towards being able to create force and velocity with low external ground and that they have to learn how to create their own internal ground as an operating agent. Whereas if I'm training, you know, like a, an interior football lineman will have a lot of external ground, both like just, just from the standpoint of they're going to have an opponent that they're going to be in physical contact with for the majority of their sport. And that person against them provides external grounding in some ways. It's like an equal and opposite force pushing against them uh, versus a, you know, a beach volleyball player that's jumping in the air is in contact with nothing and needs to be able to create this rotary movement to be able to, to spike the ball. It's like they're training from a ground standpoint and where they're accessing pushing against ground is very different from each other. And as a result of that, that might influence the exercise selection uh, process. You know, in, in many ways, I also think to myself, the more I'm seeking to drive hypertrophy into somebody, the more I'm going to make choices that will feature high levels of external grounding or exercises. And the more that I am trying to avoid hypertrophy, the more I'm probably going to choose things that will feature low external ground and reliance on internal ground. That actually makes a lot of sense. And I, I think, I feel like it's probably pretty accurate, but just as a, a simplified sort of um, example or analogy, you mentioned leg press being high on internal ground. I would think that competitive power lifters would be very high in, or sorry, external ground. Um, mm -hmm. See that feature. Whereas like in your beach volleyball example, or, you know, a tennis player, just the way that they're moving. I mean, you're fucking jumping on sand for fuck's sake. That's not very much external ground. And, you know, I train a, a high level badminton player. So with her, the way that, she, you know, you're running around, you are not getting to brace two feet plant and hit. It's oftentimes, you know, weights over on one foot as you're still moving and controlling your momentum in that direction as you take a swing. So that actually does make a lot of sense. And 
I think something really important too, you're going to have a lot of coaches listening who are going to have not necessarily a, a shit ton of experience. And so some of the things you, you said were are directly sort of challenging the language that they learn coming up through. And that doesn't mean it necessarily has to invalidate the model that you have learned. It's an opportunity mm -hmm. that I, you know, some of the stuff challenges what, you know, the, the lexicon of things I use, it's an opportunity to expand your knowledge base, to explore new ideas, to challenge the status quo and incorporate things that are valuable. It's not to say take away or, or just abandon the model of things you already learned, incorporate things you're valuable. You use Gray Cook's um, you know, book, Functional Movement Screen. Okay, cool. Probably one of the most useless you know, concepts that uh, you know, we, we've had in our industry. I've done at least one minor piece of coursework in it. Never really thought early in my career, hey, I'll, I'm never gonna fucking do this shit. Later on, it's actually quite research validated that there's very little, if any, predictive validity to this, these functional movement screens um, to predict injury, right? You still there? Yeah, there he is. Okay, good. And so can you do it? Can it teach you about how people move and having that knowledge base? Is that okay? Fuck yeah, sure. Is it particularly useful or practical use of your time when screening a new client? Honestly, I think I, I even think that very elaborate, deliberate movement screens are, are quite overrated when you have a new general mm -hmm. population client who you've already sat with and talked to for maybe an hour in an initial meeting. And then, oh, you're going to take another hour and just have them like just position their arm overhead and just, you know, squat test. I can get them on the floor, warm them up with a body weight squat movement. Can they do it? Is it good? It's 90% of the way there. Oh, cool. Coach it a little bit. Is it good? Cool. Load it a little bit. No harm done. You're not maxing them out on day one. And yep. they want to get in the gym. They want to sweat a little bit. They want to have fun. And a movement screen is no fucking fun. I'm sorry. So, you know, I mm -hmm. personally- It, it alienates. Yeah. Totally, right? And I mean, sure. Let's say you get a high-level athlete or someone with injury history and you're a practitioner in a clinical setting. Fuck yeah, of course you're going to be doing a lot of this sort of stuff. But if we're dealing with general population clients- who are excited. I mean, what's one of the most important things to do with a brand new person is to get them moving because they're excited. That fades really, really quickly. So you want to be a better fucking salesperson to help that person for the long run. You're not doing them a disservice by, and I'm not saying skip assessment. I'm assessing everything constantly. Clients that I've worked with for nine or 10 years, I'm still assessing them how they move every single set of squats and lunges and everything else. But you can tell a lot about how someone moves simply by getting them to do the basics. And I would rather look at someone's squat than a hip scour. Now, if I identify, okay, we've got limited hip range of motion or someone is not squatting to depth very well and they're compensating with lumbar flexion. Okay, cool. Maybe a hip scour will tell me something and oh shit, there we go. We've got lots of, you know, range of motion, passive range of motion. Let's see if they can actively control it. Oh, there's a deficit, right? So stuff like that really really useful mm -hmm. but i think that we can get carried away with uh, assessments and and that's one of the reasons why i haven't really dove too deeply into great cook stuff and i think he's brilliant but you know as as for spending time on learning shit functional movement screen i think one of the most useless uses of your time and who knows maybe someone's listening and thinking oh well i use it all the time cool I, you know i'm challenging your the you know the, your belief system and then stuff that you came up through but ask yourself you know are you doing it because you've just been doing it for years or are you doing it because you can without question say that it has helped you be a better coach to the clients and honestly if you if you get value at a fucking okay fine but uh, you know there's actually some good research to say that it's 
you know, it's predictive mm-hmm. value for, you know, predicting injuries is crap. Anyway, um, another thing that um, I picked out of your social media recently, because you actually write a lot of fun stuff. So I, I would definitely tell people to go follow your Instagram. And I guess I'll read the quote exactly. Resolutions are typically just poorly constructed goals that lack specificity, timelines, and measurable actions. Am I mm-hmm. wrong? End quote. Um, I agree with it because I've written similar things. I like the term goal. And I've always found that resolutions have this built-in expiry. It's like people say, oh, you know, I'm going to, you know, my, here's my New Year's resolutions. I'm going to lose weight, blah, blah, blah. But we're so used to this in media and in our past attempts that, you know, we try too much and we know that it's not going to work after a little while. So we gave it the good old try for maybe six weeks, maybe 10 days, who knows, maybe four days. Uh, maybe you started on Monday, what was it, January, what, fucking third or fourth or whatever was, or was Monday. You know, we still had the weekend. And we know that there's a built-in expiry. So I'll let you kind of come back to your thoughts with it and how, you know, certainly a lot of coaches listen to this, but, uh, you know, even working with clients or the enthusiasts, how they can better approach goal setting instead of just resolutions. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like I, I actually, I wrote that partly because uh, I was having a conversation with somebody that's uh, you know, I, I really like this person on a lot of levels and they were asking me if I had a, a new year's resolution this year. And, you know, I've, I've literally never made a resolution in my entire life. And, um, and I was like, uh, am I supposed to come up with one right now? Because I've gone 40 years without a resolution. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm supposed to like pick one. And, and I was like, uh, I'm not, I'm not sure. Like I, I really don't, don't have one. I actually did come up with one yesterday. Okay. <laughs> And it is that I'm going to a podiatrist at some point in 2021, and I'm going to have them take a look at my right big toe, which has been uh, something that's been in pain for the last like 22 years. Okay. And so it's like, you know, I I think that that's a, but, you know, uh, so I did actually come up with a resolution. This is a change in 2021 that I'm going to enact in my life compared to any previous year. But I was thinking to myself, like, you know, I, I, when I think of resolutions historically, they're probably something that, that do not come to fruition uh, at a, like whose resolutions actually come to fruition, like very, very low percentile kinds of things. And then I was thinking, well, a resolution is basically just a goal and most goals are not met. And then when you get into like this, this, uh, you know, area of like textbooks that deal with goal setting. They always tell you to make smart goals because smart goals are more likely to be fulfilled than, than goals that don't feature that acronym in there. And I was like, well, most people's new year's resolutions are they're usually some kind of body composition based resolution. You know, that's probably the most common resolution of all types that occur. And when you think about body composition goals that aren't met, it's always the same thing. Like, People do not actually come up with a uh, specific number of pounds or kilos that they're trying to lose. They don't give themselves a timeline that's reasonable. They don't actually have a, an action plan that's based on like, you know, uh, some kind of like expert opinion or, or expert source or expert guidance. And then 
it's this ambiguous, nebulous sort of a plan that lacks, you know, clarity of explanation and any kind of strategic uh, pathway towards accomplishing it. And it's like, uh, didn't work, didn't work again. And it's like, oh, shocker. I'm, I'm, I'm beyond surprised that this, this kind of a, a you know, half-cocked concept didn't work out for you. And it's like, it, you know, it's basically across the board in any endeavor that you're looking at, it's the same things come back. Like the person, like a business plan that doesn't have a P&L sheet and doesn't account for, you know, all of the factors and doesn't have like a built-in, um, you know, disaster management, like amount of money that's in it. And it's like, oh, your business failed. Weird. Uh, you know, that's, that's so strange. <laughs> How about that? You know, so it's, it's, I think that generally speaking, and, you know, the same thing is probably true of program design, like it's just good planning and planning is incredible attention to detail and trying to have um, a thought process that examines potential outcomes and what, like, if this, then that sorts of, of algorithms built into the decision-making and, you know, really just, you, it takes a lot of time to really plan something well um, and to have planned escape clauses and contingencies and alternate pathways, like that's a good plan. You know, most plans are lazy. They, they are examples of people not taking time and putting a lot of thought into it. There's, so it's, 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 it's like anything in life. If you care about it and you really put attention and you uh, demonstrate like, uh, you know, deliberate practice and you do your due diligence of researching it and mapping it out, you're dramatically increasing the probability that you're going to have a successful outcome. But the number of people that actually demonstrate that kind of a process is slim to none. Uh, and I'm actually grateful for that because if everybody was diligent and deliberate and thoughtful, then the world would be much more competitive, but it's not. So if you're actually someone that does that, you're probably going to dominate in whatever area that you go into. And it's like, you know, there's very few shortcuts and, and thankfully, everybody wants to take shortcuts. So if you're the one person that's willing to not take shortcuts and really grind, because everybody, you know, it's like, you know, everybody claims to be grinding. But if everybody was grinding and really doing this, everybody would be dominating. So they're clearly not. You know, it speaks for itself because if you actually go ahead and truly put your all into a project, everybody's going to notice it. Um, so that's, that's sort of where my mind goes to with these resolutions. It's the ultimate in this kind of, you know, shortcut, half-cocked, you know, slapdash sort of a, a thing that people sort of, uh, you know, pipe dream, wish for themselves. And, and the probability that it's ever going to happen is, is basically zero. And that project could be body. Or that project could be your fitness business and everything you just said applies equally to both right it's it's universal um and i also think i mean as much as you know you and i both have publicly posted things that kind of malign resolutions as language i mean 
two things. One is we still should be really supportive of trying to help people, give them the systems and the support they need who are trying to create these resolutions, teach them a better way. But what you described is, is universal. It's not just what people do in January. We know that it's more prevalent in January, but it's anytime someone who wants to start a weight loss journey in July and goes and, and jumps on, on a keto diet without having much knowledge as to what works and what doesn't about keto or they go to the gym and hop on an elliptical and they don't have any other structure, uh, you know, don't hire a coach or, or follow a system that will, will guide them. They're going to have the same sort of struggles and results. So it's, it's not unique to, to January thinking at all. It's, it's a very u- universal way that people think it. Like you said, people are looking for quick fixes. It's very human nature. So by definition, the people who approach it with a, a plan, hire a great coach, they're going to stand out and excel. So I think most of the people listening to this are probably people who are approaching their businesses you know, the right way. So hopefully uh, everybody listening takes a lot out of this conversation. Uh, it's been, uh, yeah, oh, I'll... it's, it's super interesting. Just, um, yeah, I know that it's basically, we, we have to wrap up in a minute, but sure. I, I do think that, uh, you know, this notion of being supportive is one that's been twisted in, in the modern world too. And, and there's like a difference. Like, I, I think that, Oftentimes, I know I've had previous business partners and, and things like that, like find me difficult to deal with. And, and I, you know, I get these labels of blunt or, or things like that. And, and to me, it's like, well, I, I'm trying to be realistic and straightforward and, uh, and helpful in, in actuality. Like, you know, there's a difference between just like a lot of people are out there just trying to powder people's balls and like, be nice or something along those lines. And it's like, well, that, that that's not helpful. You know, like it, it, helpfulness is actually pointing out, uh, you know, what is the to-do list in order to move yourself towards something? And what is the to-not-do list of actions to avoid that will detract from you uh, moving in the direction that you want to go to? And oftentimes the to-not-do list is the more important of the two. And most of the time, the areas that people are demonstrating the majority of the issues in is the to not do list. And it's like, hey, stop doing this, stop doing And, and then it's, it's, you know, I don't like to beat around the bush with most topics. You know, I, I feel like time is fairly limited. And oftentimes when you get into a topic, there's a tremendous amount of information that, that pertains to that topic. And by sort of talking around it or you know you're not doing anybody any favors and it's it's kind of like well these are the relevant important issues surrounding this topic and when i think about you and i think about the reasons why you're not having success here it's these factors one two three okay and i think if you can eliminate these factors and incorporate these factors one two three now you're probably going to find a, a, a clear pathway towards this thing. And, and sometimes that can be, I don't know, like I, I've always felt like this is how I approach things and this is how I present information. And, and the feedback that I've gotten in some instances is that it's like, you know, like, like feedback that I wouldn't expect too harsh or blunt or something along those lines. And, and I'm like, well, I, I don't know how else to present it in some ways. Like it's simply some things are and some things are not. And uh, would you, what are you looking for from this? Are you looking for 
like bonding and friendship or are you looking for uh, information and guidance? And, and I think, you know, in some ways, I suppose it's like doctor bedside manner or something like that. I don't particularly care what the doctor's bedside manner is, as long as they know how to do the surgery properly and they understand all the up-to-date information and that kind of a thing. But I've heard enough people or been in enough situations where they're like, that doctor was very nice. I think I'll go with them. And I'm like, they didn't say anything. They literally just came in and were nice to you. Like you trust that that's what you're going to go with. So there's it's in the, the last thing I'll say is that I've had to discover that for me, I focus on outcomes and goals and procedures. And that I believe that there's an entirely different universe of people that participate in activities because the outcome that they're looking for is actually a bonding experience with other people. And that I've found that I'm much more interested in accomplishing projects and putting together models than I am when actually developing friendships and bonding with other people. So I have to appreciate those kind of alternate universes that are sort of like vibrating next to each other and, um, and understand that oftentimes, despite what people are saying are the goals and outcomes that they're desiring, they are in fact actually desiring the other side of the coin and the other outcomes of bonding as opposed to directionality and goal reaching. And as a coach, recognize that's important. I think as well too, with the, the audience, the following when you're developing the fitness professionals, especially enthusiasts, it's going to be self-selecting to the type of people who appreciate the way that you deliver stuff, right? I mean, Dean again, loves what you're doing and he, and he definitely is going to respond to that sort of thing. So there are going to be people listening going, ah, you know, maybe this quite philosophy isn't for me. And then there are going to be people listening going, I fucking love this guy. I got to dive into more of his shit. And I hopefully, you know, the former keep an open mind, but the latter go really headlong into what you're doing. So tell them where to find you. Everything for me is consolidated to my Instagram, which is at Dr. Pat Davidson. And I've got the link tree uh, in the bio uh, that'll take you to everything that I do. Yeah. So it's, I think the easiest way in the modern world is through just that one source and one platform. Well, I, again, I appreciate the finally getting the chat with you. Like I said, it's been long overdue, but uh, Pat, I appreciate your time. And I'm going to make your book a resolution <laughs> this year. Uh, no, a specific goal. And hopefully some other people check it out as well. Hopefully it sells a few copies. It's up on the RP website too, right? I saw that. It yeah. is. That it's for sale through Renaissance Periodization. And it's an ebook primarily, but I mean I've seen like images of people who like print it off and have a physical copy. So yeah, guys, go check mm -hmm. that out. Go check out what Pat's doing. And thank you so much. And I will be I'm rec we're recording this on, on Wednesday, so it'll be the following Tuesday. So when people are listening to it, well shit, it's alive. So fuck it. Anyway, thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Have a great day and I'll get you all the details so you can share it. Take care. Thank you so much. You too.